This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey there, thanks for watching. I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation today. I am filling in for Jank, and I actually will be here with you all week on The Conversation as... Jake is in Houston, uh-huh, working very hard to get some great debate coverage ready for you. So I'm here today, and I'll be back tomorrow, and thanks for sticking with me. We've got a great show, so let's get right into it, because we are first up joined by David Dennis Jr. He is Senior Culture Editor for News One, and we have a lot to break down. Good evening, David. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. Let's get right into it because earlier in the show, um, Anna Kasparian broke down how dozens of uh, Bahamas Hurricane Dorian survivors actually say they were kicked off a ferry headed to the U.S. because of a U.S. government policy. And I think we want to have a a broader conversation about uh, the U.S. and the history of treatment when it comes to natural disaster victims. And we can talk about Katrina We can talk about Maria, right? What's that in Puerto Rico? And obviously the earthquake in Haiti. Where do you stand on this? Yeah, so I was born in Louisiana, uh, raised in Jackson, Mississippi. And I remember Katrina vividly. And Mm -hmm. this is one of those instances where we look at Trump and we talk about the evil of Donald Trump and the things that he does. And of course, he went on to say that there were some bad people coming from the Bahamas and the usual racist rhetoric. Um, We could say all that and we could talk about this as being a Trump-specific thing, but it's not. This is, again, um, you know, we've talked about this before, continuation of uh, Republican policy that for in my lifetime goes back to Katrina. I remember uh, when they treated uh, black folks in New Orleans the exact same way. They kept them cooped up in the Superdome. They villainized them. They treated them as if they were uh, stealing goods just for trying to survive, and you know essentially kicked them out of the city, um, moved them across the country, treated them like criminals, and that's what we're seeing now. So we can talk about the evil of Trump, and there's a lot of lot to that that we can do and talk about the racism of Trump. But this is American policy. This is how we treat these natural natural disasters, especially um, you know, in this day and age when a lot of these affect uh, disproportionately people of color. And as global warming worsens, worsens this will impact people of color um, more. You're completely right. Um, we have a lot to get to today, and unfortunately, so we're going to move on. But let's move on to Antonio Brown because he made a big decision over the weekend and bounced up. He ended up with the New England Patriots. A lot of people upset with him. Uh, there's a lot going on here because uh, I want to talk about how this has been framed because I actually saw some tweets on your timeline. You have a great Twitter timeline. Shout out, what's your Twitter real quick? What is it? Uh, David DTSS, everybody give me give me a follow. Yes, give him a follow. And uh, I saw at some point someone had tweeted something like, uh, what about the children or this is gonna be bad for kids to see? Someone called this the worst person, the worst thing ever that the that in sports period, something along those lines. And I wanna talk about the framing of it and also why you think it is that so many people do not like the idea of athletes having the same sort of control over where they work that most regular adults do. Yeah, so the Antonio Brown thing has been quite uh, a circus over the last uh, few months. Mm -hmm. He uh, joined the Oakland Raiders. Uh, He 
uh, one, he fought the NFL over helmets. He fought the Raiders over his peeling feet, uh, which was a thing that happened. And he basically forced his way out um, and went with the Patriots, who there are rumors that that's who he wanted to be with all along. Um, he left the Raiders with zero dollars, joined the Patriots, and now they're a powerhouse. And again, what we see is a lot of times uh, with these athletes taking control over their careers and um, you know doing things that a lot of times the owners do. I mean, on NFL, you can cut a player uh, and not have to pay him anymore. So Antonio Brown took a very uh, you know I'm not going to defend a lot of the stuff he did, but he took his his career into his own hands, went to the Patriots, and that offends a lot of people. Um, especially when you see the workers, uh, a lot of times black folks making decisions uh, for themselves. So yeah, uh, Greeny uh, this morning uh, went on and said this was the most unprofessional thing he's ever seen uh, in sports. Uh, you know, I remember Mike Tyson biting somebody's ear off in in a sporting event. I remember Tanya Harding uh, hiring allegedly hiring somebody to uh, break her opponent's leg with a crowbar. I remember the malice in the palace. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, literally every domestic violence incident in the NFL. I don't think that we could qualify this as the most unprofessional thing we've ever seen. But that tends to be what happens a lot of times when uh, athletes sort of go against the grain and, and break some of these uh, established rules. Fantastic points there. We were chuckling behind the scenes. They're like, you know, whoa, he's right. Yeah, I knew it wasn't the worst, but you brought up some just wild things that how can you even fix your mouth to say that? All right, let's move on to Kamala Harris because today, uh, 2020 candidate and Senator Kamala Harris, she released a huge criminal justice reform plan. So some of the things there, she wants to end mass incarceration, undo the war on drugs, legalize marijuana, end the death penalty, and solitary confinement, get rid of cash bail, and much more. The plan, I think, kind of pushes back at critics who have a lot of negative things to say about her record as prosecutor and, of course, uh, California's uh, state attorney general. What are your thoughts on the plan? And do you think that she will be able to convince voters that she will approach the system differently as president, uh, different than she did as the prosecutor? Uh, to answer that, no. I think that uh, no matter what policy she has, is mm -hmm. uphill battle. The 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 brand has been on her. She's been, you know, a lot of times with these, we learned from 2016 that the lowest common denominator is what people remember. We people will call Elizabeth Warren uh, Pocahontas mm -hmm. or whatever this whole time. They'll call Biden somebody who uh, you know messes up every time he speaks, and of course they'll call Kamala Harris a cop. Well, wait, and, and I want to stop you right there because you're right. Everyone says that's the common thing, Kamala Harris is a cop. But I've never heard that about Amy Klobuchar. I've never heard that about Eric Swalwell. They had the same jobs. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I, 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 right. And I, that's interesting because yeah. why is no one saying Swalwell's a cop But when he was still in the race? Why is no one saying uh, Klobuchar is a cop? Why do, I mean, I know why. All right, so <laughs> yeah. here we go, yeah. back to the first question. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's it, it, there is some intellectual sort of dishonesty that goes on with a lot of these, and, and it's like I said, lowest common um, denominator, and a lot of that is just that the base idea is that she's a cop, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is an uphill battle for her to go against that. Now, looking at the policy, she did talk to um, a lot of activists, and she seems to have um, put a lot of thought into uh, this policy, and it it really does go to show how much impact Black Lives Matter and activism has had in this country. These are conversations that we would have not had five years ago before Ferguson. Yeah. Um, these are conversations that uh, were not happening in the White House, they were not happening in presidential debates. And now, um, you know, Kamala Harris, who is somebody who also five years ago 
uh, people think may have not even come close to having this conversation has a pretty comprehensive criminal justice reform. My problem is I just think it's gonna be hard for her to sell herself as, a, as the um, criminal justice uh, Black Lives Matter candidate considering um, the label that she already sort of established. And, and is that label fair? Not just because it's not given to other people, but because her, of her record, I think that there are a lot of positives about what she, who she was as a, as a prosecutor. I think that her record as far as the state rape kit DNA database, I think, or rape kit backlog, excuse me, I think that was fantastic. I think she did put a lot of work in there. I think, um, what else was, it's on the top of my, but I, as far as like revenge porn and what she did with tech companies and how she was able to get them to take this seriously and things like that. Why do you think uh, there's not a lot of positive that jumps out? Well, um, that's just that's the label she has, and yeah. I think that especially if you're trying to react, um, you know, reach out to black uh, voters, uh, as soon as you start to have the label of somebody who was um, involved with mass incarceration, involved with putting black folks in jail, um, involved with issues um, in terms of criminalizing, um, you know, when it talks about drug use and things like that. I mean, it's hard to break away from that. And you know, you know as well as anybody else that when those memes start circulating on Twitter, when social media gets involved in it, and and that stuff is 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 part of the label. I mean, that's I mean, it's 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 the emails uh, twenty twenty same thing. Yeah, you're right. All right, let's talk about Bernie Sanders because there's a the latest controversy in involving Bernie Sanders in the N word. A right-wing website, to be fair, yes, did bring up a passage from Sanders' book, a 1997 book, Outsider in the House. And in the passage, he is explaining using racism to pit poor white people against black people as a political tactic. And I want to show you what he wrote. He wrote, uh, this is just part of it, obviously. For 100 years, the white workers of the South were the most exploited white workers in America. They were paid the lowest wages. They endured the worst working conditions, their housing. Uh, I want to fast forward a little bit here. It says, what did they have? They were given in words to hate and look down on, in words who couldn't vote, drink at their water fountains, use the same bathrooms, or sit up front in the buses or movie theaters. Um, Sanders campaign national press secretary Brianna Joy Gray defended uh, this uncensored use of the N-word in a statement saying, in part, Senator Sanders is describing the well-documented racism and hatred that was used to divide the working class against itself in this country for hundreds of years. In fact, that entire chapter of the book is simply a recounting and criticism of the Republican strategy that was infamously described by GOP strategist Lee Atwater in 1981, which involved using racial bigotry and epithets to demonize people of color. Uh, many people seem to believe that it is okay for non-black people to use the N-word if it's part of a direct quote, if they had good intentions, and a lot of people believe it's not okay. And I also want to point out that this was not a direct quote. Uh, you had a lot of thoughts about this on Twitter. I, I know that you, I saw you reacting to this. What, what are you, what's going on in your head? Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't say the N-word. I mean, it's, this is basic, this is basics, right? Like there is no need, uh, uh, unless it was a direct quote. It wasn't a direct quote, first of all, um, like you said. Second of all, I mean, you could have just said black folks. There was no point in using the N-word. I would have understood, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would have known he was talking about. It could have said black folks, could have said African Americans. That's fine. But also what we're talking about here is the, um, you know, Bernie Sanders' whole ideology about race in America, which is why it doesn't connect for for some black folks. I mean, his idea is that economics determines racism, when in fact it's the opposite. 
racism determines economics in this country. And you know, to go further in that quote, he says that you know it was about fighting a common oppressor between poor whites and black folks, and that's not true. You can say that the oppressor of poor whites is rich white folks, but the oppressor of black folks is white people. And so there's no I you know there's no way that you can say that we have the same common oppressor because poor white folks oppress black people all the time. And uh, you know, to say that there's anything different or that there is a reason beyond pure racism uh, is just not, it's just a mischaracterization, mixed characterization of the way race works in America. Yeah, wouldn't it have been the worst to say, look, you know what I meant, I'm not a bad guy, but you're right, I could have written that differently. Would that have been bad? I yeah, wonder just, why that wasn't, you know, in, I wonder why that wasn't the the response. Yeah, just say you've learned. I mean, it was 20 years ago, mm -hmm. right? So just say you know you thought you were making a point and you messed up, and that's what it was. I mean, I it, he messed up. He said something that he should not have said, um, and you know that's the point of it. I think that the bigger issue, or not the bigger issue, because saying then words a pretty huge issue, but a, a huge issue was the fact that he just does not understand how race works in this country. If he's going to uh, equate, um, you know, make justify the racism of poor whites in this country. David Dennis Jr., thank you so much for being here with us. I can't wait to have you back. Follow him on Twitter and check out his News One articles. You write for a lot of places. Follow yeah. him on Twitter and he posts his work there. All right, thanks Too for joining Twitter. us. Yeah. All right. All right, we'll be right back with a congressional candidate. Can't wait to talk to her. Stay with us. Hey there, I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation. Let's introduce you to our next guest, Erica Vladimir, congressional candidate for New York's 12th district. Erica, good evening. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me, Brooke. I am excited to talk to you. First off, let our viewers know, why are you running for Congress? Well, I'm running for Congress because I know first uh -huh. shuts out the very voices that we uh, should be having at the seat of of the table. Um, you know, when I co-founded the sexual harassment working group, it was because I had uh, experienced harassment by my former boss, who was a very powerful senator at that time. And I decided to come out because I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. So by co-founding this group with six other survivors, we started pounding on that door and making sure that those legislators were going to listen to us and give us a seat at the table. They were trying to pass these laws in our name without talking to one victim. And we knew that they weren't going to protect us. And while we were able to change the narrative, um, you know, in those few months, not much else had changed. And what it really took was that upcoming September 2018 primary, when a new generation of leaders were voted into the state Senate. So this is senators like Senator Julius Salazar, Alessandra Biaggi, Zalmer Myri, Andrew Bernardis, Jessica Ramos. And they stood by us, they stood shoulder to shoulder with us and recognized that we deserved that seat at that table. And they called for that as well. And it was really powerful working with them. And together we were able to overhaul the human rights law for the first time in a generation. And the first step that we took, which was the most important step, was holding public hearings. This was the first public hearing. Actually, there was two of them. There were the 
two public hearings, the first time in 27 years about sexual harassment in the workplace. And that gave victims the opportunity to be heard in a public forum and have their experiences on the record to comment on legislation that was going to impact their lives on a daily basis. That is what government is supposed to do. And that is what we deserve in Congress. And I think I'm uniquely qualified to help bring that to Congress. I went to law school because I knew that government can be a force for nature and a force for good and for reform. And then I worked in the New York State Senate to get that firsthand experience. And I just left a job with the city's independent budget office where I worked on education policy. And all of this together makes me the best candidate out there to bring a new voice for District 12. And you, I want to ask you about what you just mentioned being sexually harassed because you have been very open about this and very strong about this. Can you talk a little bit about what what happened and your experience after the fact? Do you feel you were protected as you should have been? Yeah, I definitely was not protected, and unfortunately, I am not alone in this. You know, as I mentioned, I co-founded the sexual harassment working group with six other women who are also either harassed, assaulted, or retaliated against by state elected or appointed officials. So there was a huge systemic problem inside government, inside the New York State Capitol when it came to harassment and discrimination. You know, when I first came or when I first left my job, I was really ashamed what happened. And it would take the Me Too movement reviving and seeing all the stories about Harvey Weinstein for me to realize that that the first step in me being able to help protect workers, especially those in the New York State Legislature, was to tell my story. And by working with other survivors, with coalition building, with experts and advocates, we were able to put out a policy paper that gave probably much stronger recommendations than what was passed in 2018. And then working with, like I said, the news, this new generation of elected officials, we were able to hold these public hearings and really empower the people who were shut out from the very beginning, who were hurt by the system that was supposed to protect them. And we gave them that space because that's what we deserved as victims. That's what we all deserve from our government is to have that space to talk to them about how these new laws are going to impact our daily lives. And that's how we got some of the strongest laws in the nation. That's great. I know workplace protections, that's a big, that's a major part of your platform. I want to talk about some other aspects, some other things that are important to you. Education, right? Yeah, education is definitely one of my top priorities next to workplace protections. I went to law school to focus on education policy and trying to change it from the inside in government. And when I was in the New York State Senate, I worked on education. And then again, when I was with the city's independent budget office. And, you know, we know that there's a huge inequality, you know, system that is affecting so many students, not just here in New York City, but across the country. And I really want to get to the heart of that and look at different funding streams. There's this one, Title IA, which is the largest federal funding stream from two schools and school districts. I think we need to really reevaluate that and also increase the funding. And then also increasing protections and protecting the civil rights of students, whether it's because they're in special education or looking and monitoring the disproportionate use of school suspensions. What about paid parental leave? That's a, that's another major part of your platform, right? 
Yeah, it it is. I think paid parental leave is is really important. I think expanding that to a paid family leave and making sure that it's inclusive for everybody. Mm-hmm. So not just somebody who gives birth biologically, but someone who chooses to adopt. Um, you know, same sex couples. Um, you know, if you have a family member who's ill, a parent. You know, pay, a paid family leave should be extended to those types of situations. I have a twin sister who uh, she and her husband have a baby, Brindley, who is the light of my life. And, you know, being able to see that, you know, they had to think about these types of things of what kind of access do they have to paid parental leave. And it shouldn't have to be a one or the other. They shouldn't have to say, any family shouldn't have to say, can I put food on the table while also bonding with my child? It should be both. And we have the opportunity in Congress to give that to families across the country. Where do you stand on Medicare for All? I'm 100% for Medicare for All. Um, you know, I was very sick as a child. And even to this day, I suffer from endometriosis. Oh, wow. And, you know, Knowing that anytime I was taking a new job um, and having to wait those three months before my health insurance kicked in, making sure that the health insurance that I was going to have access to was going to cover all the specialists that I was going to see, um, the surgery, the medication, um, how much was I going to have to pay out of my paycheck in order to do that? It, it It's something that I know on a personal level is so incredibly stressful on top of trying to deal with a very painful illness. And then seeing how my parents were really fortunate to have health insurance that covered a lot of all my tests and hospital stays when I was a kid. No parent should ever have to choose whether or not their child can get a test or medication or be seen by a doctor. That money thought should never be there. Everybody deserves guaranteed health care. What about criminal justice reform? What are your plans there? I really believe in so many things that uh, Tiffany Caban, who actually just ran for Queens District Attorney, was fighting for. And we're seeing a lot um, now that there's been much more focus on district attorney races across the country. We definitely need to end cash bail. Um, It's just another step in criminalizing poverty. Um, You know, we also need to end mandatory minimums. We need to close down for-profit prisons. And we also need to make sure that we're investing more money into programs that divert people from the prisons and into, you know, drug rehabilitation programs or mentoring programs, um, vocational programs, so that this way recidivism is much lower than what we're seeing today. Erica Vladimir running for uh, Congress in New York's 12th District, thank you so much for being here with thank us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, and I think your website info, it's ericafornny.com, right? Correct. And you can follow me at ericafornny on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's it for today's conversation. But uh, there's a really cool post game coming up because I think you don't often get Emma Viglin here in the studio. And today, She's in the studio. I know you saw her earlier on the show, but she is coming back with Anna for a really cool post game. So I'm excited to watch it, and you should too. Stick with us right after this break. Post game with for members, though. So you've got to be a member, right? That's important. That's where you get all the cool stuff. You've got to be a member. So coming back after this, Anna and Emma in a really great post game. Stay tuned. I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for watching.